Hey, Katie, mm. you, you had siblings, right? Yeah, I have an older brother and I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Oh, did you ever help take care of them when you were growing up? I did. Um, for my younger siblings, I uh, wrote an encyclopedia about each of them. Oh, so normal stuff then. Yes. Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince and I'm here with my friend Katie McKissick, also known as Beatrice the Biologist. It's true, I'm here. <laughs> we, we, have, we have cleared the bar, the minimum requirements. We are both present. It's happening. <laughs> so today I'm going to be talking about Margaret Mead, whom, whose name may or may not sound familiar. I have a hoid of her. Hoid. Hoid of her. Um, but before that, do you have a, a science starter for us today? I do. Ooh, what is it? And it's about tongue-eating lice. Ew, why? Because, <laughs> yay. Um, yeah, so I've heard of these, but I didn't really know a whole lot about them. I've never heard of these. Oh, good. It sounds terrifying. They sound delicious. <sighs> um, they're, it's kind of a family, they're, uh, cymathoid isopods. Okay. So isopods are... Oh, like crab, crustacean sort of thing. Sorry, they're not crabs. They're crustaceans. Like, um, you know what an example of an isopod is? Is like a roly-poly or okay. whatever you call them, like a pill bug. Those are isopods. They're one of a few that are on land. Most of them are in, you know, marine environments. They're right. in the ocean. Uh, but yeah, there's this one, well, actually several kinds, a lot of kinds that, yeah, they are parasites of fish that, whew, um, they get in the fish's <laughs> mouth uh-huh. Uh, they all start out as male. One one will find a fish and will go into its mouth. And if it's the only one there, it turns into a female mm-hmm. and cuts off the blood supply to the tongue, which then eventually falls off. And, the, and, the, and then the isopod just takes the tongue's place. What? So you'll see these fish that have this open mouth. And there's just this what looks like kind of like a pill bug just in its mouth where the tongue should be. And it's about the same size as, as what the tongue would be. So yeah, there's just this crustacean so in its, its mouth. It's like feeding off of the blood supply that would have yes, gone to the some tongue? some of them, right. So some of them are living off the blood. Some of them are just living off of just kind of mucus in the mouth and just are able to eat that, you know, as the fish is going about its life. <laughs> That's my dog Sorry. sneezing. <laughs> Willow, get it together. <laughs> Salute. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so, and what's kind of weird about it, I mean, it's very unusual for a parasite to replace an organ. You don't yeah. see that a whole lot. Um, but what's even stranger about it is that it's so extreme, and yet the fish don't seem to be ter- horribly affected. Some people have noticed that fish that have these parasites versus fish that don't are a little bit lighter weight or a little bit leaner. So, so you know, clearly it, it is a little bit taxing mm-hmm. to have something like that, but but not so much that they are, you know, you know, that they die immediately or anything like that. There's not a whole lot of evidence that it's terrible <sighs> for them. I don't know how uncomfortable it might be. I mean, maybe it's not so bad once your tongue falls off. <laughs> I don't it's know. It's like, this is... I mean, I haven't paras- asked any fish about this. Parasites are horrifying. Yeah. So then, so the female is the tongue, or you know, is has replaced the uh-huh. tongue, and then any other males of you know the same species that are nearby just kind of hang out by the fish's gills, and will just kind of and will you know will mate with her, and then when she has a bunch of babies, they kind of hang out until they smell other fish nearby, like uh-huh. just the smells in the water, and if they see some overhead, they just dart upwards and try to find an, a fish that is unaffected with the parasite to sort of colonize and then if they're the only ones they will become a female and replace the tongue and this and the cycle starts over and over again so yeah so 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 one if it's by itself forms a tongue if you found a fish that already has one and Uh has staked the claim and and has become the female then your options are to either just hang out with the other males and just kind of compete to see Uh you know who can reproduce or try to go find your own own fish but yeah it's kind of a it's like, well, do I kind of venture out and try to find my own fish? Because if they don't find one within a couple of days, they could die. So it's like, do I just hang here? Do I play it safe? Or do I go out and find my own journey? This is horrific. Because the options are the parasite shows up, cuts your tongue off, takes its place, then lives in your mouth, mm-hmm. you know, feeding off your blood. And then when other parasites show up, it breeds in your mouth. with your it's like get a room oh you have a room it's my mouth 
that's i'm not i'm never gonna sleep again yeah i mean in uh, you know movie aliens that are parasites sometimes do thing use you to reproduce or something but usually they then just have the decency to kill you and move on they don't usually just stay. No, I, I never thought of that as the best case scenario, but now I'm I'm rethinking like all of those. So you'd rather die than just have a thing replace your tongue? <sighs> you know. But what if it's like not that bad? <laughs> I yeah. No, I think I choose death. <laughs> are you are you not in the death in the death uh choice? I need more information. You, oh, mm. okay. no, I'm just kidding. Okay, it'd be, it'd be terrible. I'll communicate that to all the parasites. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I will say I think that human beings, as far as parasites go, out in nature, we you know we get there are tapeworms and ringworm, which is not a worm; it's a fungus. Whatever. Right. We we definitely have some, but I feel like we uh we got out a, a pretty good deal because <laughs> we don't have anything like that. <laughs> Yes. And also, just the parasites that we do get, we can treat. Mm-hmm. Which, oh my god, there's so many times where even if I just have a cold or a headache and I take some Tylenol, I'm like, thank you, science, for <laughs> modern medicine. Whee! Like, you yeah. know, when you have a cold or the flu and you realize if you'd been born 100 years earlier, you just would have died probably. Like, you know, it's nice to know that we have found solutions to some of these problems. Yeah. <laughs> It is really nice. Like mouth parasites. Go us. <laughs> so did Margaret Mead have a functioning tongue? Yes. That was her own. That was her own. Ah. Yes. Some people probably didn't like what it said, but oh. you know, whatever. <laughs> well then. It's fine. Segway. I know. So yeah, so she was born in, uh, she's, if people don't know, she's a famous anthropologist. Aha. Uh-huh. And a studier of peoples. Exactly. Anthropology, the study of, of man, the study of humans, um, and, you know, Culture. everything that humans do and how they function in a society. So it's just turning the camera on ourselves, I guess. So Margaret Mead, she was born in Philadelphia on December 16th, 1901. She was the oldest of five children. That's when my great-grandmother was born. Really? Yeah. It's like right... You know, just made it into mm-hmm. the 20th century. But um, she she lived in a very progressive household. Her father taught economics at the University of Pennsylvania. Her mother was a social scientist who did, like, research on immigrant communities in the area and, like, in New Jersey and stuff. And her on her father's side, her grandmother lived with them, and she was a, a former school teacher. And so she ended up educating kind of all the kids. So it was it's funny because... Her mother, because her mother was, you know, uh, into this, all this sociological research and used to taking notes on other people, when she became pregnant with Margaret, she started keeping all these detailed notes about her pregnancy. Oh, about her, she she turned the camera on herself. Yeah. Let me study myself and this process. Exactly. Because she believed that everything that she did and like consumed or whatever had an effect on her unborn child. So she just like documented everything. <laughs> it was funny, like the the grandmother who lived with them also kind of took up this habit. So like her mother kept documenting what was happening to Margaret even after she was born, like just kept like 13 notebooks full of notes on her, which man, who had the I time guess, to go through all of that? I mean, it just makes the baby book, str- scrapbook things that we do these days seem like piles of crap yeah (laughs) do they have detailed notes on everything that the child did no probably not um but the the grandmother you know she was margaret was the oldest so when her younger sisters were born she was around like eight years old and then 10 years old and her grandmother encouraged her to keep notes on her sister's development study your siblings (laughs) like they are aliens i think it's like the best back combination of educational opportunity and keep this child busy while we take care of the baby's strategy I've ever heard of. You know, it reminds me of um, my mom's, so the pediatrician that my mom went to when uh, she had my older brother and then me, when I was born, he told her to tell my older brother so he wouldn't get jealous of having, you know, a new sibling uh, to teach me to smile. (laughs) 
that 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 was his job. You uh-huh. know, like, you're an older brother now, so you have to teach this baby how to smile. So for the first, and you start maybe you start smiling around six or eight weeks or so, uh-huh. and so um, even blind babies do. So it's like huh. they they're gonna do it. They're gonna like learn how to do that with their face. But my brother would just go over to me all the time and just be like, smile and make this big <laughs> smile. And uh, you know, after doing it for weeks and weeks, I started doing it. And he's like, look what I did. I taught her how to smile. I'm awesome and whatever. So it's just like it's he's they're gonna get that feedback is what it sounds like it's like you have a job to do now yeah it's gonna keep you busy it's gonna make you feel good it's gonna be great i just like imagining this little eight-year-old i know it didn't happen this way but like this little eight-year-old in like a homemade lab coat with like a little clipboard like watching the baby making detailed notes like oh farted the baby is now crying 23 i do not know why (laughs) yeah so somewhere i don't know if anyone still has these notebooks but i think they would be amazing to read because I don't know. If anyone keeps these detailed notes on their own kids, please let us know. Yeah, seriously. I want to know. What did you do with them? What do you do with them? What is recorded in them? I want to know all the things. So, yeah, and, and she didn't grow up in a religious household, but apparently later she became an Episcopalian, which is uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess it was her way of rebelling <laughs> against her <laughs> progressive upbringing. Um, well, her other way of rebelling was actually she got secretly engaged at the age of 16, um, to this guy named Luther Cressman, and he was studying to become an Episcopalian priest oh, and ended up becoming an anthropologist, oh. which I don't really see the connecting line between those two careers, but I feel like my career is kind of the same way, so I'm not going to judge. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> Whatever yeah. works. Knock and yourself out. She ended up marrying him um, in 1923, so she was 22. So she waited, at least. Was smart about it. Um before that, though, she went to university. She started out at DePauw, and then she transferred to Barnard uh, College, and she got her BA in psychology. And um, while she was at Barnard, she met this anthropologist who was really famous. He was one of the world's top experts in the area. His name was Franz Boas. Mm. I have not heard that name. Yeah. And he became her mentor. And, like, his whole thing was, you know, this was the 1920s, and, you know world travel was becoming much easier you know people were kind of globalized they're all roaring around they're all roaring around (laughs) industry is really taking off like we're becoming more of a global world as opposed to just segmented countries and we're connecting more and more and so his deal was he wanted to make sure that we studied these cultures who were as yet untouched by other outside influences before they kind of succumbed to this you know, globalization effort and everyone is becoming more and more the same or exposed to each other's values and cultures and all of that. So he was interested in seeing like where people, like where people started from and how they'd maintain those cultures. Right. Like it's like studying all the ingredients before you just put puree them all together and can't yeah parse what came from what. He wanted to study the onions and, and the carrots, not just the soup puree at the not end. just the mirepoix <laughs> it's harder to study the onions and the carrots once they've been pureed into soup like it's much easier to start with the actual vegetables so yeah that's that's what um he was interested in and he was also interested in um the whole debate of nature versus nurture because at the time eugenics was a thing and, like getting really popular and so the whole debate was you know are people just driven by biology or is it more cultural right are you born a certain way which would be the nature side exactly or are, is are you a complete product of your environment which is the nurture side of course the answer is in the middle right and but... of course if you're in the culture or the you know society that's on top of things you know you're you're in your number one ranking you want to believe that you're special and that it's just the way things are because it's your biology that's you're just number one you're the smartest and the best and everyone else deserves to be below you because they're number two three four forty seven and uh he did not think that was the right way to look at it um so that's kudos to him because you know white guy on top of the world i assume german um (laughs) at this time like he was more willing to say oh well maybe i'm not as smart as i people think i am maybe it's just because i was raised in the right part of the world i've had a lot of opportunities exactly yeah it's like that expression about like being born on third base and going through life thinking you hit a triple exactly it's like no you just started there i only (laughs) recently heard it and i've heard it like twice in the past month it's the perfect description Mm -hmm. that's like the perfect description um 
so yeah so she he was her mentor and she really got interested in the whole like side of you know understanding culture in this way like what's nature what's nurture and um she ended up earning her her master's degree from columbia university also in psychology but in that time like she was doing her doctoral studies and he wanted her to study native american populations you know closer to home and she was like no i want to go to samoa and so she just like hopped on a boat because you know that's all we had yeah, back then, boats. and made it all the way out there and she ended up staying out there i think for not the better part of a year well that's because it took so long to get there on a boat <laughs> you gotta you just, don't want to leave you double down on the vacation trip <laughs> Yeah, people didn't take like two day vacations. They were like, well, let's just go for two months. It's yeah. fine. Um, Minimum. Not that this was a vacation, but like she got out there and um, she wanted to find out how much of human behavior is universal and therefore like, you know, just our natural biology and how much of it is culturally learned. Um, and if it's culturally learned, there must be differences out there between, you know, especially primitive societies who haven't been exposed to any outside influences like how did they develop and, and what's the difference between them? So she focused on the relationship between individual and culture and how individuals learn those cultures. And so she focused on children and how kind of children developed and how they got the values from their culture and how they kind of internalized that. And she was also interested in, because <laughs> she said, you know, to be a part of a society, you have to kind of grow into that society and become more like other people so that you can relate to them. And she was interested in, interested in the non-conforming individuals. So the people who are like kind of the outliers in their own culture and how they were kind of integrated into the culture or kept in there and what the effect was. Because obviously she came from American Western culture where there were very defined gender roles a term which she basically, you know, pioneered. Oh. There were very defined gender roles. And, you know, women were expected to behave a certain way. Men were expected to behave a certain way. Also, people of different races were expected to behave certain ways and, you know, succumb to the hierarchy of the society. And so she was just like, is, right. this, the, is this the same everywhere? Like, what's going on? Well, and children are expected to behave certain ways in different cultures, too. I mean, back then, it probably was still very much like... You, you know, you speak when spoken to, yeah. you're out of sight, you know, you're not the center of attention, you know, whatever. And honestly, like that was kind of the attitude towards women in general at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, because women always get lumped in with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like also, you just nurse them for a year and then you, then that's all you're, you, all you are. Their like role was to be like a, su a supportive, submissive role to the guys. Mm -hmm. And clearly she was not that kind of woman. And so she was one of these non-conforming individuals. So no wonder she was interested in like how people like her and other societies functioned. Right. And I think this is one of the best examples of why we need diversity in science. Because she, <laughs> she was a woman who was non-conforming in her own, you know, culture, went out to study and asked the same question of other cultures. And that's why we have this body of research, basically. And like she pioneered this field. Yeah, I think people, it's so funny, like the whole diversity in science question, a lot of people are like, well, it shouldn't matter because everybody who's doing science, you know, they, they're doing the same process. So they'll, you know, they'll get the same answer, you know, because there's the whole idea is that if things are reproducible, so some yeah. people have this idea that it doesn't matter who's doing it. And it's like, sure, maybe once you've established an experiment and you do it, it, it shouldn't quote unquote matter who's doing that experiment. It should, you know, it should come out the same if they're doing the same, right, the, the right methods and everything. But the question right. it's that really you're a framing asking issue. is a different thing altogether. <laughs> exactly. Like my favorite example of that is that there's thousands of research papers about. Uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to try not to giggle about the size <laughs> of male genitalia. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many papers there are on the size of female genitalia? Like two. <laughs> Because yeah. dudes are not asking that question, yeah. apparently. So yeah. that might be their second question, but yeah. really they want to just no, know. Like, the, no one seems to ever get there. But yeah, it's like the questions you're asking, that can definitely be yeah. affected by your background because you, it's your perspective that is feeding what you want to know and how you're asking it. Yeah. It, so, yeah. it boils down to different people with different experiences ask different questions mm -hmm. 
differently. <laughs> I mean, it's the same reason that the more diverse a board is or a team is or whatever, the better the outcomes about the decisions they make and the directions yeah. they choose to go in because you have this, you're covering all your bases. If you have that that diversity of perspectives, you'll be able to catch things that maybe wouldn't be a good idea or whatever. You just get, you, yeah, you have everything covered. Yeah. So it's always better. Well, this is like every time we see something in marketing where we're like, clearly I can tell the kind of person that wasn't in the room or at the table or being listened to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what was it? The the Tesla logo looked like an IUD. Oh, yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, someone could have. I, I know who could have pointed that out. Yeah, <laughs> anyone yeah. Well, with I the think uterus, the same really. Thing when yeah, when when things go horribly awry, and it's like, oh, so you didn't have a pessimist on your board yeah. that could say, here's how this will go terribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all worked with people like that who are just like naive and 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 yeah. just happy and you know optimistic people and they really just need us pessimists to just punch them in the gut every once in a while. Well, it's like when they released Microsoft's um, artificial intelligence on Twitter. What was her name? Tay? I think it was Tay. I remember this. Yeah. And um, within hours she was saying horribly offensive racist kind of Nazi things. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you released her to the internet and you didn't warn her about stuff like that? Because why wouldn't the first thing we teach in artificial intelligence be sexism and racism? Yeah. Why not? I could have told you that would have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I but, don't. Yeah. yeah people, we, we all need each other for different reasons. But hmm. yes, the, this is this is why diversity is important. Um, so anyway, well, so she what was, did she find? She found all sorts of stuff. So she, because she was a woman, she was able to gain access and trust of women and children much more easily. And she did this by kind of like treating um, common ailments. You know, she had medical supplies with her. And so she was treating stuff like parasites and diseases and, you know, whatever. And so in that time, that also gave her access to people when they were being giving birth and also when they were dying, because those are both times when you need a medical person around. Um, it is nice. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> she was able to like observe very up close, like all of these cultural phenomena and like took very detailed notes on those. Um, and she spent a lot of time, um, nine months observing and interviewing, um, mostly women. She studied 68 girls in three villages in Samoa. And instead of doing a longitudinal study, which, you know, you hear this term a lot, but it just means like you're studying the same people over years, like like sometimes decades, decades. kind of like Jane Goodall did actually with her, uh, study of chimps like she stayed with the same community for was it 50 60 years like it's just crazy amount of time yeah i mean it's basically still yeah. going on so and she, there's so no end yet she's documented that family tree to like oblivion um but so uh margaret didn't have that luxury because she knew she only had a limited amount of time in these villages and so what she did instead was she looked at women from different generations and tried to kind of gauge when they learn things from their culture and how they learn them and that kind of thing. So that's like the other option that you can do in order to get kind of a more complete picture. You know, obviously she was, she was interested in the, in the question of gender roles and how we learn our different, you know, hangups and and stresses from our culture. Cause her whole theory was like, is our adolescence just stressed everywhere? Like, is it always a traumatic experience to go through adolescence? And what she found in, in Samoa was no. Oh, like, man, really? I, <laughs> what? I thought you were going to say yes. I well, was like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> she came from an American culture, Western culture, that had a lot of hangups regarding especially sexual relations, especially for women. And she wanted to know, like, is this just the way things are? Like, are we just always stressed out about this? And, like, do we always have these guilt feelings and, you know, pressure from society? And what she found in Samoa was like, no, that's not necessarily the case. Like, they clearly had their own hangups in different ways. But because of the way they kind of dealt with sexual relations, which was kind of like a little more loosey-goosey, they didn't have the same kind of adolescent trauma. So puberty wasn't an unending hellscape for them? I guess not. I guess it was like more of a limited hellscape. I can't imagine anywhere that puberty is fun, but like (laughs) (laughs) it certainly does not have to be as terrible as perhaps we've experienced. Well, and certainly not as as horrible as it was in around World War One for women in Western society. So that that was nice. Um, 
she ended up publishing a book on all of this when she came back. It was published in 1928. It's called Coming of Age in Samoa. She was 27. <laughs> <laughs> She's just a baby herself. She's just a baby. But yeah, she she like gained all this insight. And yeah, her main finding was it's not as stressful when you don't have all these cultural pressures <sighs> associated with sex and gender and blah, blah, blah. And puberty and bodies and yeah. things that happen to them. Are changing bodies. I mean, I wonder how much of my, you know puberty related misery was just because middle school was just such a crazy time anyway yeah like you go from being in elementary school i mean my when i was in school it was k through six was elementary and then i just had seven and eight i didn't i know some hmm. people have like junior high where it's seven eight nine yeah but so and so and then and for our european listeners who have like different you know kind of schooling situations seventh and eighth grade is when you're like 12 and 13 and you turn 14 when you're in eighth grade and then you go to high school so, so yeah, 12 and 13 year olds are in just middle school. And yeah, you go from your elementary school where you've been for several years yeah. and you know, kind of know everybody. And then you just get just thrust into this insane situation where you have different class periods and you have six teachers instead of one and everything is just upside down. And I was, and then I mean, you I mean get I've your always period. been an anxious person and <laughs> yeah, yeah it destroyed me. I still have <laughs> nightmares about not being able to find my locker And then when I find my locker, not being able to remember the combination, not being able to see the combination lock, like, it's just clearly, yeah. Yeah. But, um. It's like the lamest form of trauma is like locker related trauma. Yeah. But it was, it was super anxiety inducing all the time. And yeah. And they went from in elementary school. It's like, you need to go, go to the bathroom. You just ask your teacher. But then uh-huh. I went to this thing where like, you're not too trusted anymore. So you're like, can I go to the bathroom? And your teacher's like, why? Like, um, what? <laughs> and you can only, you only have three passes a week. To, I'm like, well, what if I have to oh pee God. every morning at 930? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> because I had my breakfast and now I have to pee. Wait, what? It was just, oh, it was so weird. It was really weird. And just like stuff like. You know, if you're a girl or a woman, I guess, and you've you've started your period, right? Yeah, and then you get your period having, around this time. Yeah, and like, of course, the the school uh, the school rule was you cannot have any kind of medication ever. Like, it all must be dispensed through the nurse, which is just not practical. I always broke that rule. I always had a thing of, of Advil course, in my bag. And everyone broke that rule, but like, you also lived with the fear that if you were ever discovered, like, you could be suspended. It's just so... (laughs) My thing was that I had, even though it actually never happened to me, I always had the most intense phobia of having a stain on the back of my pants. Oh, yeah. So I think I had a sweatshirt tied around my waist for like three straight years (laughs) because I was just, it was just, I think I would have actually perished from embarrassment if that had ever happened. And I I just wasn't even willing to risk it. So I I saw it happen once. You just burst into flames. Oh, God. And yeah, you're gone. You're like a pile of dust. But my mom was actually really good. Um, When I got, when I did get my first period and, you know, I talked to her about it, it was so cute. She, when it was just the two of us one time in the car, which was kind of rare because I have three siblings that are, we're all pretty close in age. So, Uh you know, we have like similar schedules and stuff. When it was just the two of us in the car, she gave me um, a little gift box and it had a really pretty bracelet in it. Uh And she just kind of gave me this little talk that was like, hey, I just wanted to kind of welcome you to the club. And, you know, it's like, I know it's, you know, things are weird right now, but I'm here for you. And, um, you know, when I, when I got my period, my mom always kind of started treating me a little differently. And I just, I want, you know, to have this open door, like you can talk to me and everything's going to be okay. It was just like the coolest moment. Yeah. And um, I was telling someone that randomly like a week ago or something, and she has a daughter. So she's like, oh, my God, I'm so inspired. I'm so going to do that. And like when it comes to that day, I was like, oh, OK, that is a good idea because <laughs> me and my friends had zero information to share amongst each other. And like uh, the only person who knew anything was this girl who had been held back several times. And, uh, you know, she was she was an immigrant. So like I think language barrier just kept pushing her back but she was 14 in the fifth grade and she knew Whoa. stuff and um, fifth graders are what like nine she was very nice no no, and no. Fifth graders everything are 10. yeah they're like 10, 10 11. 11 yeah so yeah three year age difference mm-hmm. was key you know and she she was very like blasé about it all already mm-hmm. and so that that helped yeah but yeah that was our only that was our only adult that's <laughs> what was going on Oh, God. Anyway, so getting back to Margaret Mead, but she, you know, this book made her very popular. 
And she credits that with the fact that she wrote it in English. <laughs> so I guess that means, you know, jargon it free. It wasn't necessarily meant for academics, right? It was meant for like regular people because what she really wanted people to do in America was read her book and then compare it to their own lives and figure out, huh, how much of the stuff that I was taught yeah, is examine not yourself. my own nature, mm-hmm. it's nurture, you know? So mm-hmm. she wanted people to be able to compare and, you know, just. I mean, it was meant for an educated public, obviously, like people who would kind of understand these kinds of things, but it was still not aimed like at the academic level, which I feel is lost a lot of times these days. You know, people are so, I mean, it's tied to being able to get tenure and funding or whatever, but like you're so focused on impressing your peers that you never write it in language that regular people could understand. I mean, this is why we need science communicators and all that stuff, yeah. but it would be nice. And if- that's so funny to me. Cause I read, I read the primary literature. I read scientific papers sometimes and I'm like, it wouldn't be that hard to just yeah. have, I mean, it would be a little bit longer because rather than using a very specialized term, you would just use a couple words to explain what it is and everything, or at least on first mention, all that kind of stuff. Because you're definitely going to learn some new vocabulary. Um, and of course, some quote unquote jargon is necessary. I mean, like a species name could be considered yeah. jargon, but yeah. it's like you need to be very specific about what animal you're talking, or it doesn't have to be an animal, but whatever organism you're talking about. So so yeah, maybe you have to drop this very specific name. But but other than that, it wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, it's not that hard. But yeah, I but mean, there's no There is a very to dry way of speaking. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, my background is political science. I'm like, oh my God, like reading these things. But once you get used to it, it's very, it makes sense. Like there's a, a logic to why you define terms in the way you do, why you have these long run-on sentences with the Oxford comma and all of that stuff. But yeah, there is a way of saying it. Mm-hmm. in a way that other people can understand. I think some journals ask scientists to, after they submit their very esoteric, like inside baseball version yeah. that other researchers will use because it's in that language, to write at least a paragraph, if not maybe a, a page, you know, like five or 600 words that, you know, would take like two minutes to read, explaining what the significance is and like just kind of what is this? Yeah. Like for the rest of us in plain English, like what is this paper about and why does it matter? And what did you do? And what did you not do? And you know, what are the next questions? Like that's what everybody and wants to know. I think the review board for that one pager should be a bunch of fifth graders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they could like make notes and be like, I don't know what this is. Yeah, one. what? Send I this mean, back. And there are some journals where you um, you can write an extra paper. It's, there's a thing called a frontiers like that paper uh-huh. they have a kind of a sidesy thing where they ask researchers to yet yeah, write an article for like a middle school audience huh. i helped someone do one a couple months ago so i know that you know there is that stuff too but it's an extra step not yeah. everybody does it yeah. not everybody ca- not everybody cares you know whatever um but yeah that's awesome though. i know yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're getting it from the source. That's what's so yeah, cool. Cause exactly. science journalism is amazing too. And you know, they get the paper and then they, they, you know, sometimes ask the scientists a question or the, or a question like, how did you feel about this? Or mm-hmm. how excited were you just so you can get some of the, the human side of it and then they'll write about it. But sometimes, sometimes the details are off and sometimes yeah. they kind of connect things that actually weren't said by the paper or they make the bigger jumps or they extrapolate. And so it's like, it's a, it could be a very, a paper that actually is just one small step and they just go five steps. They're like, Oh, this means that dinosaurs could read. It's like, well, no, no, no. I never and also, said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're all over pop dinosaurs. <laughs> dinosaurs had their own books the hardest part was the tyrannosaurus holding the book (laughs) where he could see it um but yeah i mean the other thing is you know because the language of academic papers is so precise and you know deliberately so yeah it's like legalese if you try to change it you might inadvertently be changing the entire meaning of Mm -hmm. something without realizing it like even though you think oh these two things are the same right they are not the same and then if you send it back to the scientists they're like oh my god yeah i mean it it really is like scientists are kind of like lawyers and how they have to write things that they're not introducing um ambiguities (laughs) ambiguities oh my god (laughs) words words um but yeah it's just it's funny that way um my brother's in law school right now, so yeah, he's going through all that stuff. It's like, here's how you have to write it so that it can yeah. only be understood one possible way. It's it's not easy, 
But yeah, so she, I mean, because she wrote her book very accessibly, people, Good for her. people read it. And um, because of this, she became very associated with sexual theory and the whole idea of the study of gender roles and all of that stuff. And her her interests were extremely diverse. And like later in life, she ended up talking about all sorts of stuff like, you know, nuclear proliferation and world hunger, everything. Like she would, if you asked her to like, oh, can you give a lecture on such and such? I'd be like, sure. I will tell I'm you gay. how it affects women because <laughs> surprise, everything affects women because yeah. women are half of the world. <laughs> yeah. So she, um, yeah, she was awesome. So she, because of the kind of controversial nature of her studies, there are a bunch of haters, you know, that have come out of the woodwork. Uh-huh. And, and one of the most prolific is this guy named Derek Freeman. I don't like him already. I know. Um, and in, let's see, it was in like 1983, he published a, a paper or a book or something saying like, none of her findings are relevant. She was just tricked by her subjects. Oh like God. they were making fun of her basically. Viral. And so he attacked her for that. And she actually met up with him oh. many times over the years to try to explain, you know, how she did her research and... I guess why it's real. And um, in in recent years, in more recent years, some academics have come to her defense and like gone over her notes and details because obviously we know she takes very detailed notes. She has <laughs> been since she was eight. Um, and they've concluded like, no, like there's no way that she could have reached the conclusions, even if she were deceived by these two subjects. Like there's no way that she would have come to the same conclusion. You know what I mean? So it didn't really, even if that happened, which didn't but so um, annoying for someone to oh, yeah. disagree with what you with you know the conclusion you came to so just say well it it can't possibly be true yeah exactly fake news fake news exactly and like <laughs> she she kept writing books i mean this was not just like her only book she she studied seven cultures and told her like she wrote all these books about you know various aspects of generals male female like you know all these different things and so this guy like fixating on this one thing that he says happened is just kind of weird like why why would you waste your time doing this yeah go out and do your own stuff Go get an ice cream or something. Um, <laughs> or some frozen yogurt, at least. But yeah, so, I mean, her, her career was fine because she was a, a curator at the of ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History, and she actually stayed there until her death. Like, she was working there even after she, quote-unquote, retired. I think she kept working for them for free. Like cool. She was just like, she was there her entire life. Um, in the meantime, though, like, right around the time that she published her first book, she divorced her husband, Luther, um, so they'd been married for like five years and that was the guy that she got engaged to, you know, very early on. And this was because she had met this other guy named Rio Fortune. What? A New Zealand anthropologist. I'm sorry. Can you say his name again? sounds so sexy. Say his name again. Rio Fortune. Mr. Fortune. <laughs> I'm sorry. He was a I Bond a villain. <laughs> I know. Whoa. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so she married, she married him because who doesn't want to be married to a Bond villain? I, I, I don't see why not. Um, sounds like a good plan to me. And because he was an anthropologist, they ended up working together as well. So in 1930, you know, they, they took a trip to Nebraska. They studied some native Americans there and then they moved, um, to Papua New Guinea and they started studying different cultures there. So she's just like bouncing around and taking notes on all these different cultures and always along the same lines of like, you know, male, female roles and all of that. And so she's basically gathering all this data and that she will end up comparing across cultures, which had not really been done before. So she was a pioneer in that respect. Like she didn't just want to study one thing and look at it in a vacuum. She wanted to study across cultures. One of the things she found, and she wrote a couple more books. One was in 1935 and the other in 1949. Uh, The first one was called Sex and Temperament in Three Primitive Societies. So that's when she really started like comparing cross-cultural. And then she wrote Male and Female, and that was published in 1949. And there's a quote from that. It says, Differences in sex as they are known today are based on the bringing up by the mother. She is always pushing the female towards similarity and the male towards difference. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, these were the kinds of generalizations that she could see by looking at like multiple cultures and then comparing them. Once again, always bringing it back to American society and being like, how, why do we do things the way we do things? Um, 
And again, this fed into the whole nature-nurture debate, which was ongoing, as we know. Um, Things were still heating up at that point. Uh, People still talk about this. Yeah. I mean, it's not over, you guys. I know, I know. And and this is, yeah, this is the thing when... (laughs) When uh, when people bring up this argument, maybe you should just hand them a book that was published in 1920, because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's probably some stuff they could learn from there. Um, but she she you know she was interested in how motherhood reinforced gender roles and how that was similar across cultures and that kind of thing. Because obviously there are some things that women can do that men can't, such as have babies. Um, so she kept up with that research. And she tried to always persuade Americans to compare themselves to these different cultures because she believed that by understanding other people, we could understand ourselves. And she wanted to know how, you know, she she was an advocate for the fact that we should be accepting of other sexualities, you know, homosexual as as well as heterosexual, and that motherhood and careers could go together. And she was also concerned with how people were becoming more and more isolated from each other, like in urban settings. And she wanted us to get back to kind of the more community-focused way of living. So like the way that a village operates instead of even though uh, a city might seem like a giant village, it's not really like everyone lives on their own in their own units and, and doesn't really interact as much. Yeah, it's such a bummer sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and amidst all of this, she had a daughter. She had like all this trouble, like doctors told her she'd never conceive, but she ended up having a daughter named Mary Catherine. And there was a cool fact about Mary Catherine. She was actually one of the first Spock babies. <laughs> because if you've heard the name Dr. Benjamin Spock, like he wrote a I famous book. I never remember book. his name. Yeah. I mean, you hear Dr. Spock and like growing up, I always thought that he was the same guy from Star Trek, but that's, yeah, not, that's not accurate. For he sure. was, um, you know, he was a pediatrician, but he wrote this book called The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. And he was an advocate for, uh, what was it called? demand feeding of infants so like when a when a baby cries you feed it when a baby cries you pick it up because up until up until then people were just like leave it it's fine well yeah the idea was that you would spoil the child really early i mean now of course it's like you cannot spoil a newborn you can't it's not possible because they don't know what they're doing like they're just gonna they're like i'm hungry i'm upset yeah they need they need all of the all of the help they can get yeah I mean, they can learn that later when they're two, when they like want goldfish crackers. You're like, no, no. Or, yeah, when yeah, when they're like four, five, six months, they'll start to kind of be like, okay, I'm, I'm yeah. cool. There, whatever. Exactly. But yeah, you but yeah. So this was a board. revolutionary, uh, yeah, method. Which is funny because it was you know not long before that it was like twenty years before that where Sarah Josephine Baker came up with the whole like don't keep a baby in the same clothes for a month on end. Oh, Why don't God. you change them every time they poop on themselves or yeah. get dirty? Like, just keep changing that onesie. Yeah. And it totally improved infant health, like, across the country. <sighs> so, yeah, real big strides. It seems like small steps that we take for granted now, but, you know, these were, like, new concepts. Sometimes we have to relearn things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we knew all this stuff thousands of years ago. <laughs> I know. This was 75 years ago, you guys. Like, that's not that far. I want to read a book about all the knowledge that we've had to discover multiple times oh yeah yeah well this is this is how civilizations yeah disappear yeah it's because we don't like this is why we write stuff down <laughs> <laughs> so everyone pick up a, a copy of dr spock's book um so you don't forget but yeah so she she was an advocate of this wet method so mary Catherine was a happy baby comparatively mm. speaking to all of her peers hello willow Here's a happy baby too. So she, you know, she she actually ended up uh, divorcing Mr. Fortune, doc- <laughs> Dr. Fortune, I assume. And uh, she married this other guy that she met. His name was Bateson, last name Bateson. And they ended up being anthropologists together and they went to Bali, which sounds like a romantic honeymoon, but <laughs> really they were just there to document culture. And it was funny because they used a new tool that was available to them, which was like the uh calculator (laughs) what's it called the film machine is what i want to say (laughs) the picture camera (laughs) the picture camera the moving cameras and (laughs) 
<laughs> and they like took a bunch of photographs. They took like thirty-five thousand photographs oh and thirty-three thousand feet of film. I'm pretty sure film. that yeah, that um, film was not cheap back then either. No, and not They're light. Like, let's and not spend easy our entire year's salary on film. It's crazy. And also, like, there was no sound yet associated with film. Like, this was all kind of you know, at least the equipment that they had in the field. Like, you couldn't record sound at the same time. And so, what they did, they would synchronize their watches, and then they'd be like, "All right." take detailed notes and like note of down what, what said. time it was. And then the filmographer would also note down what time it was so that they could sync up the notes, their notes to oh what God. was occurring on film later, which is brilliant, but it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> but that resulted in a book they published in 1941 uh, called Balinese character, a photographic analysis. And it was like one of the first times that, uh, photographs were used in this capacity for like anthropological research which I imagine was game-changing because you're studying people. Like, you want to see pictures. If this is what everyone remembers from, like, National Geographic. It's, like, pictures of other cultures. So that was 1941. And then, you know, World War II came around, and we're not really going to talk wait, about wait. it. which war? Which one? The, is it the one? Is yeah. it World War V? It's World War V. And um, it cut off field research in the South Pacific where they were doing all the research because obviously you don't want to get on a boat and be torpedoed by the Japanese or the Germans. Yeah, and what didn't World War II screw ruin? up? <laughs> I know. So instead, she came back home and she founded the Institute for Intercultural Studies. And um, that was kind of... Uh, it was for advancing knowledge of the various peoples and nation of the world with special attention to those peoples and those aspects of their life, which are likely to affect intercultural and international relations. So, you know, she made lemonade because <laughs> what are you, what else are you going to do during, during world war two? Um, when life gives you grenades, you make grenade made. <laughs> exactly. You make Gatorade. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't know. And the Institute was actually, um, run after her death by her daughter. Oh, she was the president of the Institute, and, but it closed in 2009, and I think they rehomed a lot of the, the research material. Um, I think they just couldn't run it anymore, and I think at that point, you know, she was going to get out of that business, and she didn't want to burden her kids with running that. So you have to find new homes for that stuff anyway. So it continues, but in other places. So like I said before, you know, she became kind of a celebrity because she spoke about all these issues and she wrote about it and she spoke on everything like child rearing, sexual morality, race relations, population control, environmental pollution, blah, blah, blah like everything. And she even, <laughs> she apparently, um, you know, in speaking about like nuclear weapons, she was not a fan of Dr. Edward Teller, who you might remember from the Oppenheimer episode that we did, where he was an advocate of the hydrogen bomb. And he was like, yeah, let's build the biggest, baddest bomb that we can. And and Oppenheimer was like, let's bump the brakes and not <laughs> destroy the universe while we're at it. And she was elected at the age of 72 as president of the American Association for Advancement of Science. And she was only the second woman to head that group. And it was interesting because we talk about, you know, diversity in science and like advocating for for people and in 1955, they had their annual meeting in Atlanta, and they opened up their sessions. I mean, this was pre-Civil Rights Act, and so they were like, whatever, we're just going to open all of our sessions to members of all races. Like, we don't care. But the fact was, they were still in, in Atlanta, so people still had to deal with segregation in public spaces and, like, restaurants oh, and all man. this stuff. And so there was this big debate in the society, like, should we still have it in Atlanta? Because, you know... We're not going to segregate, but these our members are still being subject to segregation, like outside of our walls. And she was an advocate for having it in Atlanta that year because she wanted the opportunity for like local protest. And then after that, they decided, you know, we had it in Atlanta this year, but we're not going to have it anywhere in the future where not all of our members can participate. So cool. This is cool because this is kind of the decision that organizations are making now, especially with bathroom laws and all this crap going yeah, on. Yeah, immigration stuff. Yeah, and, and they're like, well, if you're not going to be open to everyone, then we just won't have our giant conference there, which, mm -hmm. you know, has an economic impact on whatever state or city is being a jackass, <laughs> which is nice. Um, so, yeah, she was always involved in these issues. She was always kind of... 
looking at things from different perspectives, which is pretty cool. And she kept on, you know, with her kind of communication to the general public, she wrote, um, she co-wrote a column in Red Book for over 17 years. Oh my god! It's a monthly column. <laughs> wow. And it dealt with a lot of family-related issues, you know, women's issues, whatever. Like, she wrote about anything. And so people were familiar with her. Like, they knew her. And at so the same time... So she was time, almost a household name, maybe? Yeah. I mean, wow. I think this is why... People remember her, you know, they remember the name. They might remember that she was an advice columnist in Red Book as opposed to a famous anthropologist. But like, you know, she was able to meld those two worlds. And her daughter ended up becoming a dean of social sciences at Raza Shah uh, University in Iran. So she did quite well in academia. And um, Margaret ended up passing away on November 15th, 1978. She was 76 and she died of cancer. Um, and she was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom the following year, 1979. So that's, you know, the country's highest civilian honor. Yeah. So she was recognized for her work, maybe not in time, but she also got tons of honorary doctorate degrees and all that stuff. So people knew who she was. She was very popular. I want an honorary doctoral degree. I know, Do you think that'll ever happen? (laughs) Yeah, but now I see (laughs) these days who they hand them out to sometimes, and I'm like, eh, you know. Uh, I, st- I, st- I still want one. <laughs> Somebody give one to me, please. <laughs> Take note, everyone. Mm. <laughs> Katie wants one. Give um, it to me. She did, you know, all that research in the South Pacific and compared cultures. And I think that's a perspective that we should keep doing without being condescending, I guess. I wonder what she'll order at brunch because obviously she's coming. I know. I know. She'd be very interesting to have at brunch. She'll probably want to go to some really cool fusion restaurant with <laughs> with very interesting international brunchy options. That's true. That's yes, true. She's so worldly. She probably so ate traveled. all sorts of weird stuff in her travels. She's like, I will just have grits. I bet she's you. eaten a lot of bugs. Yeah. I think if you I have never had travel, the pleasure. If you travel in the South Pacific, you probably end up eating a lot of bugs. I've heard they're they're pretty good, but uh yeah, I haven't haven't gone there yet. I mean, sorry, haven't you know done that <laughs> or been there? So yeah, I did read that Both she sense. she you know she ate like wild boar and pigeon and a lot of dried fish, which you know I guess if you're on an island you're gonna eat a lot of dried fish, so maybe she'd have something with smoked salmon. Ooh yeah, yeah, the smoked salmon bagel plate. I think I'll have that too. Whatever yeah. she gets, I'm just gonna have her order first so I can just go <laughs> yeah yeah I'll, I'll have that too, so I don't have to choose and I can just get whatever she's getting. This is a plan. So that's it from Margaret. Who are we talking about next time? Do we know? Oh, I know who it is. Who? It's Carl. Hey, Carl. Or if you're a fan of Walking Dead, it's Coral. <laughs> Coral. <laughs> anyway, uh, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to go to our website, sciencebranch.org, and subscribe for things, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or any of those sorts of things. All the socials. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah, do it. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Okay, cool.